pointing to the bulletin. And I said, yes. We'll be preaching for the next five weeks, six weeks um, through the book of Hosea. And she said, you are very brave. I thought to myself, I want to be very faithful. And I want to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, that I have preached the whole counsel of God and I have not held anything away from you that is written in God's Word. Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see the relationship between God and His people described through different pictures of a Creator and His creatures, of a Lord and His servants, of a King and His subjects, of a shepherd and His sheep. But in the book of Hosea, that relationship between God and His people is described through the picture of a husband and his wife. This means that we should never, ever assume or conclude that in the Old Testament, God is just a cold, distant, emotionless God. Not at all. He is a husband to his people. And therefore, his relationship to his people is one of love and exclusive commitment, even in the Old Testament. I like what Derek Kidner, one of the theologians of the Old Testament, said about this. He said, this approach, referring to this love relationship, this approach is far from sentimental. It sharpens guilt immeasurably by making it the betrayal of love. It shows us that the true motive of God's persistence, so easily thought to be mere doggedness, and it deepens our understanding of repentance and renewal. For since against love, since against love, damage the very roots of a relationship and are not healed by a brisk set of apologies and hasty resolutions. The unfaithfulness of Israel toward her husband is incredibly painful, being portrayed through the horrendous experience of a marital betrayal. The most intimate, the most intimate of human relationships is broken through the most painful experiences of betrayal. Not just once, not just twice, but many and many and many times. Yet what is even more painful is that the spiritual unfaithfulness of the Israelites has been such a slow, decaying process that many of them did not even realize it. And this is just a warning for us. Instead, most often, and just like for us today, spiritual unfaithfulness does not happen as one giant big step across a black and white line. Spiritual unfaithfulness has, does not happen as a giant step across a, across a black and white line. Most often, as, is, as was the case in Israel, Spiritual unfaithfulness develops through small, progressive moves towards a progressively shading gray area 
until you are clearly in the black. And you have been desensitized to it so that you feel no remorse for being there unless God, through his prophetic word, confronts you pretty drastically. That's the picture we see with Israel. And this morning, we want to find out how is it that by the time of Hosea, the whole people are found guilty of a spiritual unfaithfulness, not just the outcasts, not just a subculture of Israel, but the whole nation was charged by God with spiritual unfaithfulness. How did it happen? Who is to be blamed? Well, today's scripture will reveal to us how that spiritual unfaithfulness began unraveling. I encourage you to open your scripture to the book of Hosea, chapter 5 through chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4 through chapter 5. We'll be reading from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 5. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the uh, chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 785, 785. Now, I will be reading today from a different version that I typically read from. I typically read from the NIV, which are the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. But today I will be reading from the English Standard Version for one particular reason. Because the ESV renders, I believe, a more faithful translation of the provocative nature, the provocative pictures expressed in the Hebrew text. So if you're using the NIV, just know that I will be using a different translation throughout the sermon series. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet, let no one contend, and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people 
inquire of a piece of wood, and they walk, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and turbinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughter plays the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the whore, and Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of judgment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who have moved a landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a long lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. 
I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Amen. Well, this was the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts. Let's bow our head in prayer before God as we prepare our hearts to listen to his word. Almighty God, grant us open hearts to listen intently to this dark picture of Israel's history. And give us a mind that may learn the lessons for our own daily walk with you, so that we too may not remain guilty before the accusation of your word against us. We pray these things in the name of the one who died for us and made us your people. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as we inquire about the trap of spiritual unfaithfulness, which is the theme of my message this morning, as we inquire about the trap of spiritual unfaithfulness that the Israelites fell into, I would like to observe three points. Spiritual unfaithfulness exposed. Spiritual unfaithfulness tracked down. Finally, spiritual unfaithfulness judged. Exposed tracked down, and judged. In verse 1 of chapter 4, the prophet summons the children of Israel to hear the word of the Lord. Now, the prophets did this often throughout the Old Testament, sometimes to encourage, sometimes to comfort, comfort, sometimes to confront. But this time, there is a severe reason why the prophet summons the people of Israel to hear the word of the Lord. Look at verse 1. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, the word for controversy is a very strong word in the Hebrew language. If I told you the Hebrew word, you will know it and you will remember it because we here in Texas use it a lot. The Hebrew word for the word controversy is rib. You have heard it right, rib. But it's not referring to barbecue rib, pork ribs, beef ribs. The word for rib is a word for controversy or lawsuit. It is happening when two parties have, or one party has broken the covenant or the contract they have made with each other. You would engage, or those two parties would engage in a rib, in a controversy over the contract in a lawsuit. That's why another way to to define the word, the Hebrew word rib, is a covenant lawsuit. The, The controversy is not over trivial things, but over serious things, breaking a contract. So to enter into a rib was a very serious charge. And notice who's advancing this rib, this controversy, this lawsuit. It's not just your neighbor. It's not just your co-worker. It's not just a friend. It's God Almighty, the creator of the universe. He is entering into a lawsuit with his people. Now, before we unpack the accusations that God had against Israel, we must clarify the following principle. Many of the accusations God will bring against the nation of Israel are directed toward the dwellers of the land of Israel. 
of the northern tribe specifically. Now, in the Old Testament, the whole nation was supposed to belong to God. However, in the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, the people of God are no longer identified by national or ethnic boundaries. As we heard in the passage I was read earlier in the service, God is now making those people who are not his people, he's calling them my people. Not because of ethnic similarities or national similarities, but because they have responded to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why, dear friends, we Christians may have more in common with a Mexican brother than with an American non-Christian. We may have more in common with other believers in the faith than with other non-believers who are Americans. This means for us, as we listen to the accusations that God brings against the land, we should not think immediately, oh, God is upset with America. God is upset with our nation. The people of God, for us, after the New Testament, are no longer nations in the ethnic groups, but are the people of God who responded to faith in Christ. So don't think that the applications of the book of Hosea is for America specifically or directly or primarily. They are for the people of God, which in the New Testament context is the church. Now with this clarification in mind, let's find out what were the accusations God brings against his people. He's exposing their spiritual unfaithfulness. First of all, look at verse 1, by showing what they lacked. They lacked faithfulness. Another word of that is, is truthfulness. They lacked love or kindness, and they lacked the knowledge of God. Now, lacking in these areas, if you are not a Christian, is not a big deal. We would not assume that you would have love or kindness or faithfulness or the knowledge of God because you have not entered into a covenant relationship with God. And we pray that if that's you today, we pray that God's Word will reveal Himself to you so that you may know what God has done for His people. But faith, faithfulness, love, and the knowledge of God were supposed to be characteristics of the people of God from the moment they came out of Exodus. Love, faithfulness, and the knowledge of God. And now God says, you lack all three of these. But more so, not only did Israel fail to have what God wanted them to have, but they also did what God clearly forbade them to do in the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 2. They engage in cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. All of these are there in the Ten Commandments, and the people by this time have so immersed themselves in these acts that they have been just plain utterly been unfaithful to God. Now, a word of caution for us today. As we listen to these accusations, we should be careful against developing a self-righteous attitude in thinking that we have never done these big sins. Be cautious against that selfish, self-righteous attitude. Each of us struggle with different shades of all of these sins. What do I mean by that? In Proverbs 27, Inconsiderate words are viewed as cursing. So just saying inconsiderate words are viewed as cursing. In John, insincerity is viewed as lying. 
In Matthew, hatred is viewed as murder. In Malachi, failing to tithe is viewed as theft and stealing God. And in Matthew, lustful thoughts are viewed as adultery. I like what Derek Kidner um, said about this. From its embryonic to its adult form, so to speak, a sin may change its names and its ability to hurt, but not its nature. So the Israelites were unbridled in engaging in these sins, whether visibly or privately. And we may philosophize and debate, when did they really cross the line into these big sins? And the answer is, as we will see in the passage, it doesn't matter to ask when exactly they crossed the line. The process was a spiritual, slow process of growing further and further into gray areas until they just found themselves fallen into clear black and white issues. What about us, dear friends? Do we allow ourselves to engage, to speak inconsiderate words to one another? They're not a big deal. They're just not as loving. But they're not a sin, so we, th- so we say. Do we allow ourselves to shade the truth once in a while to save our skin from embarrassment? Do we bring to the Lord a portion of material blessings that belong to Him? Do we allow our minds to engage in lustful thoughts or worse, to commit adultery or other forms of sexual sin? Friends, if some of these sins characterize our lives in an, on an ongoing basis, what do they say about our faithfulness to God? What do they say about our love of God? What do they say about our knowledge of God? The spiritual unfaithfulness of the nation is picked up again in verse 12, and it goes on until the end of chapter 4. In verse 12, if you look, people started looking for guidance from pieces of wood. In other words, instead of looking to God for direction, they were using methods of the pagan cultures around them to get their direction in life. Now, our society may no longer use pieces of wood to find the future, But how often do we make decisions for our lives by only consulting the idols of our culture and fail to ask God for what we should do in the decisions we make? God continues in verse 12 saying that the entire nation is guided by a spirit of whoredom. They have left their God in order to play the whore. This is the second time in this chapter that God says this. He said it again in verse 10. In other words, these acts of spiritual unfaithfulness were not isolated cases. Such deeds were the results of what was going on in their hearts. In verse 13, they were creative in how and where they worshipped. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel clear instructions where and how to worship Him through sacrifices. It was supposed to be done in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was central, but remember the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom. And Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom hated David and Jerusalem. They couldn't stand him. And since they no longer had the temple, 
they started divided, devising creative ways of, of worshiping God anywhere and everywhere in any way they wanted to, outside of the way God revealed in His Word. That's verse 13. They adapted into their own religious system pagan symbols and, and bought into their forms of worship. In verse 14, we find out that both women and men are accused of committing sexual immorality. And there it says, I will not punish the daughters of the women. There's a contrast there. It's not only women who are guilty of this. The men were doing it as well. God is saying, I'm going to punish both. They, were, they have fallen into sexual sins and immorality. And some of them were doing it in the name of religion. Now, to make things worse, Israel not only committed these sins, but Israel was stubborn in doing them so that the Lord no longer is able to feed his people. Look at verse 16. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? In other words, Israel's stubbornness makes the Lord's leading useless. So the Lord gives a very sad resolution. Look at verse 17. Is, uh, Ephraim, which was another word for the northern tribes, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. This is a sad state of affairs for the northern tribes. Ephraim is beyond rescue. Now let me, let me make clear something here. When God says, leave him alone, this is not a sign of God's compassion. Now, I know some of you would like to think that. If God just left me alone to do what I want to do, if God would not get involved in my business, if, not would not get, if God would not get after me, I would be so much happier. Well, if you had been an Ephraimite or an Israelite of the northern tribes in this time of Hosea, you may rejoice when you hear this. And finally, we got what we wanted. But this is not an act of God's compassion, dear friends. This was an act of God's judgment. He is no longer able to guide them. Leave him alone. Friend, when God leaves us alone to mind our own business, that is not a good sign. God shows us His love for us by being involved in our lives, even to the point of disciplining us when He needs to. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, New Testament now, just so you say that these, the two Testaments are connected here. If we are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, says the author of Hebrews. In other words, when God is confronting us with our sin, through reading or hearing God's word, through the confrontation of another believer who may pull us aside and talk to us about something that we've done, we should take that as a sign of God's grace and compassion. We should not be stubborn in our own ways. We should develop an attitude of humility and openness to being corrected so we may respond well when God exposes our 
spiritual unfaithfulness. Let me ask you this morning, do you cultivate such an attitude of humility and openness, or do you prefer to be stubborn in your ways? You know, there's some people who are just stubborn by their personality, and they bring that into their spiritual lives. Now, they may not help it because they have been born stubborn, But to bring their stubbornness into their spiritual lives, that's something they choose to do. Think of Israel. God says, Israel is stubborn. Leave him alone. Can't do much with him. Spiritual unfaithfulness exposed. Point number two. The second thing God does. Chapter four also addresses spiritual unfaithfulness tracked down. Whose fault is it? Why is it that Israel got to this point? Who's to blame? Let's unwind the history. Let's go back to the roots. Who is to blame? Well, chapter 4 gives us the answer. But before we go to the answer, I want us to remember when God began addressing the nation in, at the beginning of chapter 4, he addressed the whole nation. So God brings his accusations against a whole nation, and yet he finds a particular subculture or a subgroup of that nation more responsible for the spiritual state of the nation. Look at verse 4. The people who carry a greater guilt are the priests and the prophets. Now, the NIV has a different rendering because the Hebrew text is a bit ambiguous in this verse. But throughout the, chapter four, throughout the chapter, there's a few references that make it very clear that God selects as forefront of the accusations the priest, for, first and foremost. God has, first and foremost, an accusation against the priests. And that's why I do prefer the ESV rendering translation here. Yet, let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And verse 5 includes a prophet as well. Now notice why is it that God's people are being destroyed? Verse 6, for lack of knowledge. Now this is not talking just about generic knowledge, but about the knowledge of God. Well, whose fault is it? Well, who's, who was responsible to teach people God's laws? It's the priests, the spiritual leaders. And notice what the priests have done in verse 6. They rejected knowledge. So it was not just an oversight, but they deliberately chose to reject the knowledge of God, and they also forgot the law of God. Because they have done this to God's word, God will return the favor to them by rejecting his priests and forgetting about their children. Did you notice how the accusation goes back and forth? You have rejected my word. You have forgotten my laws. I will reject you. I will forget your children. But actually, if we look at verse 5 and 6, there's a, a more holistic picture. In verse 5, God threatens to destroy even the mothers of the priests. Now, why are the mothers at fault? I don't know. All I know is that there's a three-level, three-generational implication of the judgment that God will bring against the priests. God will wipe out the priests from their roots, the mothers, the priests, and their posterity, their children. God will destroy the priests. 
Look at verse 7. Something very interesting. The more they increased, the more they sinned. So God will change their glory into shame. Now in verse 7, it is unclear if this verse refers to the priests or if it goes back to refer to the whole nation. Clearly, verse 8 refers to the priests. So some people conclude that he may do the same in verse 7. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that his seed will increase in number. But now, the increase of the people of Israel or of the priests, whichever that may be, has become not a blessing but a liability because of their sinfulness. Their numeric growth leads them to more sin. Friends, is it possible that growth in numbers may lead God's people to be more self-reliant and depend on what they have than depend on God? Yes, we want the gospel to grow. We want more people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. But we must be aware that in the last two decades, the church growth movement has led many churches to believe that numeric growth means spiritual growth. So we are tempted to think that anything that helps us grow must be good. I think it was in the Sunday school, in the Wednesday night study that Bob taught last Wednesday. He used a phrase that caught my attention. In, in the Bible, there's a phrase, and love covers a multitude of sins. And for us today, that means, and growth covers a multitude of sins. Do whatever you want, as long as you're growing. And people come to know the Lord. Well, in Hosea, numeric growth was an occasion of spiritual unfaithfulness. Now, let me ask you this, church, Parkless Baptist Church. I'm speaking to you. If God brought to us two gifts, and he laid them on this table right here, two gifts, labeled. One is labeled growth, church growth. The other is labeled faithfulness, spiritual faithfulness. And God says, church, you get to choose only one. Which one would we choose? I will let you decide. I will let you think that question. Now, I am not against growing numerically. I'm not against numbers. But I am cautious of how the devil can take something good, something that God promised as a blessing to Abraham. The devil can take something that God has created good and turn it into an idol when we look at that as the end result of our, of our existence. God continues to expose the guilt of the priests. Look at verse 8. They fed on the sin of many people. They are greedy for their iniquity. In other words, when people bought or brought sin offerings for their sins, the priests took more joy in the fact that they had to eat than they were distraught by the sin of the people. That's how greedy they became. People would bring sacrifices. They were rejoicing. They got a job. They got a paycheck. They're well-fed. They're growing. And they did not bother to teach people against sinning. 
They did not bother to teach people to prevent, to live a life that prevents them to fall into sin. The more they sinned, and they fed on the sin of the people. They are greedy for their iniquity. So the more people sin, the more food we get. Not a bad deal for us, said the priests. Instead of speaking as the vices of the people, instead of rebuking the people for their sins. Friends, instead of the priests, here's what they were doing. Instead of teaching them to, to stop sinning, they said, just bring sacrifices. We'll take care of you. Just bring sacrifices. Friends, how about us? How about us? Increasing numbers, of, increasing numbers of church leaders no longer speak against sin for the fear that people will stop coming to church. Or they say, as long as people are tithing, we should not worry too much about their sin, about their spiritual life, or about their active participation in the life of the church for fear that they would stop giving to the church. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 gives a very interesting phrase. And it shall be like people, like priests. In other words, this verse tells us that for the people, this was a pretty good deal as well. They didn't mind the deal that the priests were making. Uh, it's always easier to bring a sacrifice to God than to forsake sin. Think of that. It's always easier to bring a sacrifice to God after you have committed a sin than to forsake that sin. It's like the common language, the common phrase, it's always easier to apologize than to ask for permission. So, friends, God says it starts with the priests. They have a greater guilt, but the people are also responsible, like people, like priests. For the people, this was a, a great deal. How does this happen today? The masses prefer to listen and go to priests who won't talk about their vices. Think about it for a moment. Isn't it easier to listen to a preacher who only speaks words of encouragement and comfort? Isn't it more soothing to your soul to attend a church that never confronts your idolatries, never speaks about your need to repent about specific sins, a church that always builds you up, never leads you to mourn for your sin? Who wouldn't prefer that positivistic church? Who would? Some of you know some preachers that, that way, because I know you, you mentioned them to me. And I'm cautious when I say listen to that or don't, but there are just some that I would say, stay away, stay away. And because pastors are sinners too, when these churches grow, they say, wow, it's growing. We'll just preach what's, what's helping us grow. So you as members, or even I included as, as a member, we as members of churches, we actually encourage pastors to continue to be unfaithful by the fact that we prefer to listen to pastors who give unfaithful messages to the Bible because they only preach positivistic messages. We, the people, have a responsibility in encouraging the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of what kind of pastors America has. So, you see how the vicious circle, circle builds up. Unfaithful pastors will preach unfaithful messages that will attract more unfaithful believers who in, in turn will encourage more need for unfaithful pastors. And here's a principle. Unfaith spiritually unfaithful believers 
will hire spiritually unfaithful pastors who will preach a spiritually unfaithful message and grow spiritually unfaithful churches and more spiritually unfaithful believers. So where do you break the cycle? Who should break the cycle? There is hope whenever we return to the Bible. Because in God's Word, God has words both to comfort and to confront. And depending on the stage we're in, God will break the cycle when we fall into this unfaithful spiritual cycle. And this leads me to the third and last point, spiritual unfaithfulness judged. Beginning with chapter 5, God speaks not only to priests, but also to the house of Israel and to the king. Yes, it may be the priests that, that are first at fault, but God address, addresses once again the whole nation, and he says, for the judgment is for you, priest, nation, and king. All three categories. Look at verse 3. The Lord is very aware of what's happening with Israel. He knows them and their ways are not hidden from him. So he's not a detached God who just has heard about his people things that were not true. No, his accusations are very true. He knows what's happening with them. Yet the people are unable to return to the Lord. Look at verse 4. God's people have become prisoners of their own habits, of their own sins, so their sins won't let them to return to the Lord. They may claim to be religious, and they may even think they are returning to the Lord, as verse 6 will show, but their actions show that their religious claims are false. For the second time in this text, we see the phrase, the spirit of whoredom is within them. Again, the phrase, and they do not know the Lord. These are common themes in these two chapters. Notice, however, in verse 6, what will they attempt to do? They will attempt to seek the Lord with their flocks. Can I interpret this for modern lane language? They will attempt to seek the Lord with their paychecks. They will become more faithful, religiously speaking, in some ways. Religious ritual, just attending church, just going through another cycle of spiritual activity but they will not find the Lord. It's like they're going to the Lord's house with expensive gifts, and they're trying to buy God's friendship back, but God is not going to be home when they come. That's the picture. As far as God is concerned, it was useless. Why? For two reasons. Look at verse 5. There's an indirect reason in verse 5. Israel's pride. The second reason is God will withdraw from them. God will not be found. Now, Israel's pride, here's an interesting, Israel's pride will not stop them from growing in their religious activity. Friends, do you know that pride people can, can become religious? Pride people like to think that God will be gracious to them because of who they are and what they have done. God owes it to me. I'm doing all this stuff for him. Proud people can increase their religious activity, and they will. And Israel did it because of their pride. But they, as, as they need God to buttress their plans and to let them enjoy their life, God who knows what's in their hearts, he will withdraw from them and will not be found. 
Friends, we cannot manipulate God. God's self-disclosure to us is an act of His grace to us, not of our control of Him. This is a key warning for us. People may seek to be religious because of pride. They may want to manipulate God to have Him do for them what they want. Some people may want to go to church because they want God to start blessing them again. Things were not going well for them, so they say, I just need a little bit of church. It used to be better for me when I used to go to church, so I'm going to start going to church. People may not really be interested in things of God, in what God's Word truly says, but only in their own well-being. So they start seeking God only for their own improvement. On the outside, such people are very committed people. They're very driven, but they're driven by a spirit of whoredom. They don't really want to turn to God. They just want their goodies back. Do you know people like that? Friends, we can't fool God. He knows us. He knows what's inside of us. And then God makes His judgment public, verses 8 uh, in, in chapter 5. He's blowing a horn and a trumpet in order to make public God's coming judgment upon His people. And then verse 12 gives a very interesting verse, very interesting picture. I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. This picture is shocking. Unlike the sudden destruction foretold earlier, Moth destroys very slowly, but surely. In other words, the silent process of decay belongs to God no less than the invasion of the Assyrian armies. And this time, God presents himself as a moth. Friends, do we realize how deep our sinfulness, our own sinfulness is, that God wants to break the cycle of our spiritual unfaithfulness if we don't turn to Christ and follow him faithfully? God exposes Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness in order to urge them to repent. And we have this story in the Bible as an example. God is the same in the same business today. He wants to expose the spiritual unfaithfulness of His people so they will return back to the Lord. It's never fun. It's never easy to expose unfaithfulness. But God does it so He may heal us, so we may turn back to Him. If He's like a husband to us, He wants us to be His faithful bride. So we have seen spiritual unfaithfulness exposed, tracked down, and finally judged. But this is not the end of the story of Israel. If in these two chapters we have seen the priests that were found at guilt, at fault, but if we keep reading the Bible, we pass the end of the Old Testament, we get to the New Testament, if we keep reading through the New Testament for a few books, we get to the end of the New Testament, we get to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that God had provided a new priest for his people. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is presented as the eternal priest, as the perfect priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from all sinners. Yet not only so perfection is separate from all other earthly priests, but the sacrifice that he, this eternal priest, brought was not just another animal, but he brought the sacrifice of his own blood, his own body as a sacrifice. So in the crucifixion, Christ was both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. God had to change the priesthood in order to break the cycle of spiritual unfaithfulness in his people. My dear friend, if you do not know the Lord, 
or if you do know the Lord, but you find yourself convicted and guilty of spiritual unfaithfulness, the way to get out of it is to start following the new spiritual priest that God has provided for us, the eternal priest, the son of the living God. At the cross, apparently the earthly shrewd priests were the ones who condemned Jesus, the eternal priest. At the cross, it was a battle between priests, the high priest, the high earthly priest, and God's high eternal priests. Friends, we stand before this table, and in just a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. It is the body and blood of Jesus, the eternal priest. God has given us a new priesthood. I know it's even more amazing that those who now belong and follow Christ as their new priest are made into a kingdom of priests. As 1 Peter chapter 2 has declared, you are a kingdom of priests when we, when you follow the priest, the high eternal priest. Dear friends, let's prepare our hearts. Let's examine our hearts and listen once again as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper to what Hebrews 12, 10, 21 says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, let us pray. Let, let's pray that the Lord would do this to us today as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.